Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. The Center for Constitutional Rights, or CCR, reports that Guled Hassan Duran, a 43-year-old Somali citizen with four children, has been held at the Guantanamo prison without charge since 2006. Recently, the Guantanamo Periodic Review Board declined to grant Duran a new hearing despite his previous hearing last October, for which he lacked adequate time to prepare and was forced to appear without legal counsel. According to CCR, the Periodic Review Board process is deeply flawed. In many cases, the board has relied on evidence obtained through torture in making its determinations. Duran has never been charged with a crime, and the government does not intend to ever charge him with one. Regardless, he remains at Guantanamo. CCR filed a lawsuit on his behalf, and the government has delayed its response twice. The suit challenges Duran's detention as a violation of both U.S. and international law. Jan Lahman, an imprisoned anti-imperialist urban guerrilla, is in the hole. Jan has been in solitary confinement since March 21, 2017, his birthday, simply for issuing two political statements, a clear violation of free speech and human rights. One statement supported the Day Without a Woman strike on International Women's Day, March 8. The other statement was titled Farewell Thoughts to My Friend Lynn Stewart, which was broadcast on prison radio. Lynn Stewart, a radical lawyer who herself had been imprisoned for her work, passed away on March 8. Prison officials charged Jan with threatening the security of the prison because of these First Amendment-protected statements. Jan has no access to news and almost no access to phone calls. Supporters say that it is important to send him letters and news articles right now. If you want to write to him, his address is Jan Carl Lahman, number 10372-016, USP Tucson, P.O. Box 24550, Tucson, Arizona, 85734. We'll also post this address on our website. Advocates for inmates at the Kinross Correctional Facility in Northern Michigan have asked for renewed prisoner support in the forms of written correspondence and financial assistance. Since their organized protest and strike last fall, the inmates have been suffering a harsh administrative backlash. Hundreds of participants were sentenced to a minimum of one year, in some cases two, in administrative segregation, also known as solitary confinement. Although some of these prisoners have been released early back into general population, their supporters remind us that many remain locked in solitary confinement. Furthermore, those who have been released are returning to the same inhumane living conditions that they protested in the fall. For more information and to find out how you can help, contact Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity at michiganabolition.org. Over the past weeks, we've covered ongoing repression directed against Michigan prisoners involved in last year's national prison strike and specifically in the uprising at Kinross Prison. We learned a few days ago that 100 of these prisoners had been released from solitary. 80 more former Kinross prisoners remain in solitary, though. Harold H.H. Gonzalez, one of the prisoners facing repression, offered these words of gratitude to everyone on the outside who carried out solidarity actions or called into the prison administration on his behalf. He writes, I thank you for helping me see the world is not a place where base animalistic instincts for survival are what's required. I thank you for giving me the gift of togetherness. For the first time in my life, I don't feel alone. 
And even though it might only be to see us through this mess, the fact that people like you really exist to make the world somehow seem safer and relieves the oh-so-tiring and heavy burden of fear. So I thank you guys for being you. I'm going to end here because mushiness is not a good look in here, but for all you've done for us, I guess I can sacrifice a little more of my male bravado in the interest of honesty, realness, and gratitude. So again and many times over, thank you. We recently received a letter from Andy who asked us to read his letter on the air. To get information on contacting him on the inside, please email kiteline at wfhb.org. So-called corrections doesn't correct anything at all. It is impossible to eliminate a problem by ignoring the cause and addressing the symptoms. When punishment for crime was swift and severe, crime was not eliminated. When horse thieves were hanged, people kept stealing horses. When people are locked in cages for long periods of times for drugs, there are still drug problems. Punishment will never solve crime. If it could, it would have by now. There is a worldwide cabal of the most powerful families who are intent on doing whatever it takes to maintain their supremacy. Those who reap profit from the imprisonment and enslavement of others don't want the revolving door of crime, police, and prison to end. All the cops, prison, police, and social workers think they are doing the right things. They truly care about making the world a better place for their kids. All they are doing is ignoring the cause and treating the effect. If more and more people don't examine the underlying cause of global social problems, then make up their minds to live their lives in opposition to the system that creates and profits from it, we are doomed to suffer forever. Liberation begins in the mind and ripples outward into our lives and the lives of everyone we encounter. My life has been ruined because I took alcohol from Kroger and resisted the police who tried to stop me. According to the wealthy, consumer goods are more valuable than my life. There are 120 people in this concrete room. They all hate the world and the way they feel, and it shows in their attitude. It is loud and dirty and violent. There is no peace or safety or dignity. There is no respite. The sounds of madness echo from the walls and test my tenuous grip on sanity. I fear the implosion. My choices are grim. Kill myself, hate everyone like a rabid animal, or just tough it out as if I had an infinite capacity to accommodate suffering. I may have to force them to put me in solitary cell soon. That's the only way to get the peace and solitude necessary to keep from losing my mind. The thing is, though, I will either have to tell them that I am suicidal or lay on the bare floor with no blanket and no clothing, but a turtle suit, or refuse housing indefinitely, thus accumulating rule violations to the point of remaining in prison for three and a half years instead of being paroled in 15 months. This speaks of the lunacy of the whole situation, that my choice is to be driven by insanity, by environment, or escape into solitude, or stay in a prison longer. The reasons for these terrible feelings are obvious. I am threatened and ridiculed daily. People pretend to be friendly, then they make fun of me when they think I'm not aware. Every day I'm called names and just generally made to feel like there is something wrong with me. They try to bring me down to their level. They don't understand me because I don't fit into any of their boxes. And they hate what they don't understand. The amount of racism, sexism, homophobia, and xenophobia is disgusting and overwhelming for someone who is sensitive by choice and despises such things. No one would choose to remain surrounded by these kinds of people. No one can live this way without losing out. 
becoming like them or going insane. None of these choices are acceptable to me. What am I supposed to do? I need much more love and attention than I have gotten thus far. I need a lot more than a little money and infrequent letters. I have had one visit since June. Doesn't someone who cares so much and tries so hard to be the change they deserve to be, don't they deserve to be appreciated and loved? I recently told the two people on my visit list I don't want visits because I want to remove the possibility of guilt from those who want to visit but can't. It also gives me the certainty of knowing no visitors are coming instead of hoping for visitors who never come. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate the help. I know the people who care about me want to visit often and write more, but don't have the time and energy. I remember the hamster wheel of work, bills, and, well, more work and bills. This is a call for arms for anyone who sees the truth in what I have said about prison, society, and slavery. You can live in such a way as to negate authority as much as possible. This is a plea for help. I'm trying to bring attention to the absurdity. This is a request for compassion. I desperately need to be shown that I am loved, appreciated, and wanted. If you like the way I think and the things I live for, let me know. If you like the way I think and the things I value, I want to know you. I need you. Do you want to come meet me in person? Sign an online visit form. It would be so rad for strangers to show up and get to know me and to show me that they care about forging bonds of affinity that reach beyond barriers of isolation. After all, we live in the same community and have the same needs. The stronger we are, the harder we resist, and we are stronger in solidarity. So if anyone cares about what I have said and is inclined to help, please don't wait. I need you. If you can send me letters, send me pictures, send me money, if you want to visit me, I would be so glad to see it happen. This week we'll hear from Patrick, a PhD student at Indiana University and a KiteLine correspondent. Patrick often shares his story as part of his participation in the AA community and recovery process, and this week he shared it with us as well. In this episode, we hear his insights about addiction, recidivism, and recovery, as well as firsthand accounts of some of the systematic failures of the modern American prison system. Our conversation took place over the phone, and so the recording quality is a little lower than normal. I'm from uh, New Mexico. That's where I grew up. actually ended up in uh, Bloomington. My, my wife is in grad school here. So I grew up a small town in New Mexico. I was one of those kind of troubled kids. Actually, I got my first felony at 13, breaking into neighbors' houses and stuff like that. So I was definitely like the like the bad kid in the neighborhood. It's you know one of those one of those stories where like you know my parents would would tell me like man if you just not hang out with this crowd or whatever you know and I'm like. Yeah, kind of, I'm kind of that crap, <laughs> that that type of scene. But still, um, most of my juvenile years were just kind of in and out. I didn't do like a lot of time then. But when I was 18, about to turn 19, we, uh, we, we beat a guy up at a party and he ended up dying. So the first time I, I uh, did some real time in the state system in prison, was for that uh, we ended up signing for a second degree murder so I and I got a nine-year sentence I did five years of that and then 
I was out for, for a couple of years after that, from 02 to 04. 04, I was just really pretty, pretty bad shape. All of my story, it's all driven by uh, addiction and uh, substance abuse just the, the whole way through. So 2004, I was uh, running and gunning in Albuquerque in the meth scene. Kind of interesting when uh, I watch uh, Breaking Bad. You know, I mean, it obviously took a lot of uh, liberties as far as that type of stuff, but it's it's interesting because Albuquerque was in continues to be like really bad as far as meth. To 2004, I was arrested nine times for just uh, all kinds of stuff, like everything from aggravated batteries, forging checks, and you know, had stolen cars and just possession and stuff like that. So the, all of those cases, it's interesting because I'm, I'm in, uh, I do a lot of 12 step recovery stuff now, primarily AA. And when, uh, we talk to people and they you know, people that are having a hard time getting sober, you know, having that initial moment when they stop to heal or whatever. And I don't know how to do that. My usual response is like, I, you know, I don't know. You can, uh, go and commit a bunch of felonies and, and eventually they will make you stop because that's what happened with me. Even when I was in the county jail sort of fighting these cases, pretty much anything I could, could get my hands on. And the problem at this point, like it just wasn't, it didn't matter what chemicals I would ingest. It wouldn't, um, you know, it just didn't seem to help anymore. And um, got all of those cases put all together into to one plea bargain after, you know, I stayed in county jail almost two years, getting all that together, and ended up with a plea bargain where I was, I was going to get out within a year. And then I got, I got caught with uh, a little bit of tobacco. This is like my, my moment of clarity for, for some reason. I don't, you know, after all the things that I had been through, there was this moment right after the, the corrections officer had taken the, the tobacco and was going to write me up or whatever, it, it, it hit me that in New Mexico, because it's a, it, most of the jails there are non-smoking facility, it's a third-degree felony to be caught with that type of contraband. So that was in itself was a, a three-year charge plus the habitual statute. You know, by that time, I'm in multiple felons, and then... That also violated the plea agreement, which I had just, just signed. So all of those nine cases from 04 that could be considered a violation of my plea bargain. So we'll just go ahead and, you know, take all of those to trial. So I was looking at just decades and decades of my life for, you know, a tiny bit of tobacco. And this was the point where, like, I didn't know exactly what it meant at the time, but like I just knew I was I was done. Especially with the, you know, using and drinking or whatever, but just, just the whole like it just kinda of broke me. And so like they didn't they didn't give me uh formal street charges. They gave me a in house write up and you know, I did some time in SEG and then uh finished out my, my time in state and got out February twenty fifth of two thousand and eight. And that's when I ended up in uh, AA and, and NA and all that and a 12-step recovery and started doing a lot of that, 
to the stand really involved. There's a lot of meetings and a lot of the sort of stuff that we do there. And more recently, one of the things that I ran into was like, uh, and I'm trying to figure out like a good name for, so you know, there's there's a problem with equality in, in the U.S. with like men and women, right? The glass ceiling, right? There's there's only so high in a lot of companies that, that women can get, unfortunately. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a term for like the felon ceiling because I, I, I went back to school, got my undergrad. I got a, a master's in business administration. Then uh, my, my wife got into school in Florida and we went down there and, and I mean, after, you know, uh, 40 or 50 resumes and cover letters and got amazing recommendations, I've got a good amount of uh, talent and education and training, it was just a complete goose egg. Basically, any of the jobs that that I my 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 training and my expertise and my uh, my education qualify me for, it's a binary question. If you're a felon, nope, not happening. So I ended up, and you know, my my wife was pregnant at this time, so I I took a sales job. You know, uh, I mean, we do what what we have to do to uh, support our family. Luckily, though, we got here to Bloomington, started looking around, you know, what, what my options might be, and I actually just accepted a offer for the PhD program at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. So I'm going to be studying prisoner reentry from a particular perspective, but it's just uh, to, to get to the point where I can make a decent living supporting my family and um, sort of enter that workforce outside of essentially working poor, I've got to get a PhD. <laughs> I, I, I definitely understand that every time I was in the cop car, they, they didn't have the wrong guy. I definitely committed the crimes that, that I was convicted of, and it's just the, 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 the limitations that, that we as felons have to deal with throughout our life. You know? So that's kind of something that, that I'm addressing, trying to address now with the, uh, the PhD program and then uh, studying prisoner reentry and stuff like that. You know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Even from a sort of societal perspective, I mean, not only is it kind of a, a moral issue as far as individuals and, and uh, you know, how we treat our citizens, but also uh, there's, there's a lot of capacity for, like, growth in our economy, you know, for our ability to solve problems. And these are, these are people that can perform and can provide a lot of great services and, and so forth for our community, for our society. And um, they, they they can't because it's uh, you know it's cut off. One of the reasons, actually, part of my personal statement letter as I was applying for the PhD program was that I'm I didn't end up back in prison more in spite of the system than because of it. It's essentially set up as a continuous cycle of reoffending and continuing to grow their prison population. 
it's in in New Mexico as well. When I went to prison there, the first time was when they were just hitting the uptick in their private prison practices there. They had brought Whack and Hud. It's now Geo. This is the company. They had made a big deal with them. And the biggest prisons in New Mexico are all private prisons run by Geo. There's been a lot of analyses as far as you know the the claims that were made that it's going to be more efficient because they're private business and it ends up costing the state more money and it's completely set up as a sort of return customer basis. We really don't want you to get better because if you get you know if you if you end up uh, rehabilitated then you might not come back and they would work themselves out of a job. For the the second degree murder case, I had tried to to deal with the prosecution and that side of things as far as addressing the addiction and and trying to take it from that angle to no avail. Just in the preparing for trial portion of the process, my lawyer was adamant that the defense of diminished capacity doesn't work in in those types of cases in New Mexico. They've had some precedent come before where they've decided that it's not a defense in those types of cases. And then when we got to the sentencing phase, I was actually accepted to a very long-term intensive program, a two-year program called Delancey Street. And it's, you know, it's it's meant for sort of the hardest of the hardcore and two years by the time you get out of there. They have a, a relative to a lot of other sort of rehab facilities have pretty good success rate. And uh, my judge just didn't didn't see the value in that. I mean, I had a uh, psychological evaluation talking about the amenability for treatment and a lot of the statistics as far as people in their early 20s who end up going to prison for a short time end up more than likely reoffending, whereas if they go to long-term treatment, they end up, you know, there's there's a lot less chance of uh, actually continuing to commit crime. We had, a, I thought, a pretty solid case for spending two years in Delancey Street instead of five years in prison. And the judge just didn't see it that way. The small town I grew up in in New Mexico is, it's not the Wild West per se, but they still have that sort of uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. And they don't really look at things from a sort of community social perspective very well. They did have out there, it's called the therapeutic community. And it's sort of a rehab within prison. To tell you the truth, by the time I got to a facility where they had the therapeutic community option, the reason I went into that program was because most of the people in there were all practicing addicts. So essentially, that's the place where all the good drugs were. It was pretty much a joke. People you spend, it's like a year program, and you spend your year there, and then if you do well, you can be like a, as part of their cadre, which is the inmates that are there to help facilitate and stuff like that. And 
all the people, all the inmate facilitators were all strung out. I mean, stock and trade in prison is normally heroin. So it was everywhere. And essentially what I learned was to take the recovery lingo and sort of the the idea that I'm working on recovery and use that to my advantage with the system. It wasn't really a substantial recovery setting. You know, I have some some idea of how these types of programs uh, end up like that. The people that were running this program, they really had no idea of the experience of the inmate or the convict, right? So these are people that were highly educated. They're licensed alcohol, substance abuse counselors, stuff like that. But they, they, they couldn't really relate to what we're doing, and, and they didn't really know our game. So it was really easy to get stuff by them because they didn't really understand our world. And on the other end of that, like I recently tried to get, a, and I'm over 10 years from my last conviction, I tried to get clearance to be able to go in the Monroe County Jail and was denied access because of my felony history. The paradox there is that the people that can probably make the most difference in those settings are the very people that they won't allow in because they're afraid of collusion or anything like that. And I kind of, I mean, I kind of get it from a security standpoint, but the the idea that somehow, well, we'll say this from my 12-step experience, the people that made the biggest difference with me are the people that had been through what I went through. It's a, almost a completely experiential-based program. I'm not going to tell you what to do based out of something I learned in a class or in a book. I'm going to tell you what I went through and how I was taught to handle it. And then try that for yourself. You know, So there's some, some depth and some weight in that message of experience. So you get a couple of pods full of convicts who spent their entire life scamming and scheming and and getting away with stuff. And then you put in some recently minted masters of social work in there to try and teach them how to get better and not really really conducive to uh, long-term recovery from my experience. I mean, not to say that these people, they were very well-meaning and they were very caring, but they didn't really have the experience. So primarily my uh, most of the engagement that I have is through AA. I share my story a lot, trying to uh, make sure that anyone that has a similar experience or could benefit from my experience knows that I'm there and available. And it's one of those sort of dramatic stories in uh, the 12 staff rooms where I end up getting getting asked to speak a lot and end up with a good amount of sponsees and so forth. You know, there's a lot of fireworks and stuff like that. But I, I get to do a good amount of service work there. I'm hoping with the uh, uh, with the PhD, I'm able to do something that makes a difference and be able to actually earn a living as well. By being able to try and help other people, it's uh, one of the things that that keeps me sober and and keeps me where I need to be.
focused on what I need to focus on. It's kind of disheartening sometimes. It felt like for a while one of the only bipartisan issues in the U.S. was was criminal justice reform. From the conservative side, we're wasting a lot of money and not showing any results. From the more liberal uh, side, it's about the fact that we're locking a bunch of people up and, you know, we're essentially being inhumane. We lock up more people per capita than, than any other country, I believe. Definitely, as far as developed countries, we are far and beyond the other developed nations. And then, uh, you know, with the, the recent administration talking about returning to a law and order state, it's kind of scary to think about turning the clock back to the war on drugs and when we thought that locking people up and throwing away the key was the answer to our problems. Hopefully it's all just sort of rhetoric. That's actually one of the reasons why I felt really motivated to move forward in my education and try and do something where I can actually help with this humongous problem that we have in our country. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.